Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Lit Must Fall. Um, you have to say it like that, <laughs> reading group. Um, I'm Pakiza, and I'll be sort of guiding today's discussion. Um, and I'll let everybody else in the group say hello too. I am Kavita. Hi, I'm Aisha. And I think I'm going to go by Aisha M in this, in this group because there's two Aishas in the group. I'm the other Aisha, Aisha A. You're muted. I'm Tara. Hello. Um, so thanks so much for being here with us today on our first session. Um, today we're going to be discussing Ocean Vong's On Earth We're Briefly Gorgeous. Um, I think to open up, I wanted to just start with um, my experience, reading around the novel in terms of how it was received, um, looking at book reviews, etc on how people have responded to the, the novel was really interesting for me. I sort of uh, noticed that very much where everybody is going with it is that this is an immigrant novel. Um, that's, that's how it's being set up in pretty much every review that I've read of the book, uh, which I think is sort of, you know, it's an important context and it certainly is very important to the book and what the book is about, but I, I feel that it's also quite limiting if that's how we choose to define the novel. I think that the novel uh, really does so much more and I feel like that as a context is, is more of a starting point. Um, so just to look at a couple of the uh, reviews um, and how they kind of position the text and what it, it sort of brings, uh, the New Yorker starts <laughs> their, their review with an opening line which I found sort of interesting and I'll just read it out. For many immigrants the best case scenario is that their children will never really understand them. So it very much starts by talking about this kind of gulf that exists between um, little dog, the uh, protagonist, and his mother who the book is written to. And then again in another article by The Guardian, um, in The Guardian, it, it sort of starts with uh, the context of Ocean Vong's family, um, their background in Vietnam, how they had to leave Vietnam as refugees and move to the US, uh, really then setting it up to talk about that beginning in contrast with Vong's sort of uh, really early success as a poet and writer. And then discussing that kind of trajectory as being a classic American upwards traje trajectory, which the further he moves into success, the further he moves away from his mother and his home culture is sort of where they're going um, in the review. Uh, and I, I sort of found it really interesting that that is a common theme amongst reviewers of the book because really for me, my response was so much the opposite. It really didn't feel like this was um, a kind of diasporic memoir as we might know them. It, it didn't feel like it was little dog talking about himself and his journey um, in a kind of move away from something, but it really felt like he was trying to maintain a connectedness and looking back, um, trying to really reconcile looking back to his mother, his grandmother, his, the history that he carries with him um, as a Vietnamese American. And I think that that's kind of the point at which I'd like to start the discussion. 
Um, one of the things I wanted to just, um, that came to my mind, um, just the, one of the first points you made, which is about um, how Ocean Vuong is seen and perhaps celebrated. Um, and I was thinking of it perhaps in the context of um, Juno Diaz. I feel a little bit like there's a connection between the way that Juno Diaz was at one point that immigrant writer who was kind of woke and was really lifted and celebrated and everything was resting on him. And I know there's been a few other writers too, but you know, he was the most visible. And then he was kind of dropped from that perch when, you know, there's all this talk around his kind of personal life and around masculinity. And I feel a little bit like, I don't know what everybody else thinks, that um, Ocean Vong is kind of the new incarnation of that, but somebody who doesn't perhaps represent that, that masculinity that Juno Diaz did, but also kind of resting a lot on him as well in this kind of current political moment. I don't know what everybody else thinks about that, but that's before we start talking about the actual book. I think it's interesting how, um, and I think this is what many of you are saying, how that pedestal makes people misread him. Because as Pakisa was saying at the beginning, this really doesn't feel to me like it's primarily about the gulf, if that's what Gia Tolentina called it in the New Yorker, between the mother and son. In fact, he talks about how he, I mean, just before that passage with the sorry, he talks about how he never leaves the the nail salon, right, as one of those places that is important for him. He retains the sari of the nail salon and points out how that sari, that sari deformed out of English, out of the mainstream English, remains um, in different contexts and how sari changes, how sari becomes a word that means, okay, I'm here, you know? And uh, it's not the gulf, it's the similarity between mother and son that he really insists on. Yeah, and the mother is the world for him too. You said that some other point. Aisha M, did I interrupt you? Um, so um, I was going to say I haven't actually been following the reviews or the reception to this novel, and I can, but I can totally see how he's being hailed as this kind of, um, um, yeah, this immigrant writer. And I, yeah, I can totally imagine it. And I also feel the same disjunction that you felt about how that holding is different from the actuality of the novel. And I guess what I can point to is within the novel itself, like I, I um, marked this, this bit, which I felt is like him referring to this phenomenon that you're describing. So he says, they will want you to succeed, but never more than them. They will write their names on your leash and call you necessary, call you urgent. I really like that. And I like this kind of self-awareness that he seems to have about what's going on around him. There's, there's a resistance to that within the novel. Yeah, for sure. And I found it quite funny that he has written that in the novel and yet in the book blurb, they call his novel urgent. And I just thought, ooh. <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> I do. I remember reading that and sort of noting it as well because it's so kind of sharply on point, isn't it? Yeah, I find myself being tempted, and I don't know if this is a temptation I should succumb to, to align that, tempta that uh, resistance with how he describes submission, right? Uh, uh, he talks, for instance, on 118, 
um, about his discovery of submission in a sexual sense and he frames it as a kind of claiming of power, right? Uh, he says, uh, recognition flinched inside him. This is how we were going to do it from now on. What do you call the animal that finding the hunter offers itself to be eaten? A martyr? A weakling? No, a beast gaining the, ra the rare agency to stop. Yes, the period in the sentence, it's what makes us human, ma, I swear. It lets us stop in order to keep going. Because submission, I soon learned, was also a kind of power. And I wonder, I wonder about the submission and its relation to violence. I really don't know what to make of it in a larger sense, whether to succumb to the temptation to render it metaphorical for the rest of his work and for the nature of that resistance. I'm a bit suspicious of that desire in myself, you know. <laughs> I was what, what you... Do you feel it's too easy? It does feel a little bit too easy. And I feel like the interesting thing about violence in this text, and I want to thank you for framing my reading of this in that way in your email, because I hadn't finished reading the book yet when you sent out that email. <laughs> uh, I found myself thinking about violence as a kind of connective tissue of this text and about Wong's relation to violence as deeply disturbing and lyrical at the same time. And, uh, you know, everybody's violent here except Wong, uh, or rather Little Dog, right? Uh, right. <laughs> Very difficult to uh, separate the two sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I do hope that we talk about uh, the problems of autofiction, yeah. yeah sure. um, the problems and possibilities of autofiction. I don't know, it feels a little bit too easy. It feels a little bit wrong to say that this mode of submission is one that is also uh, the political content of this book. Because there's a way in which the, the book does not really uh, submit to the strictures of mainstream American society, right? It keeps insisting, no, I don't. You, there's something you won't understand about this. There are ways in which, you know, or it insists elsewhere, Coca-Cola and Sprite are the same thing. You know, I didn't know that then, I know it now. That kind of thing. So I don't know whether I should, sorry, I'm a little bit, I'm sounding a little bit garbled here, but it felt like this submission as power thing was um, important for the book. I don't know in what way it is important, exactly. So I was, I was interested to hear what all of you thought about that. So just kind of to, to like zoom in on that, on that scene that you're describing, that idea of the sexual submission as being somehow taking back power, right? Um, Bell Hooks also writes about this in the same context, in the context of a kind of BDSM or and um, how that um, can kind of, how you can subvert that and how it can become agency. And I think the idea that he's putting forward is, yeah, so the relationship between trauma and acts of submission and the idea of taking control of the trauma. So the trauma is still, or the violence is being enacted upon you but it's by your choice. 
And when that happens, whether something kind of flips because now you have agency over the violence. Um, I don't know, I find it a really interesting idea, but it also touched me when you said everyone is uh, violent in this book except for little dog, like so much kindness, so much tenderness, you know? And the whole novel seems to me to be an exploration of the wound, you know? And it feels like everything inside me kind of goes very tender as well when I'm reading it because it's about the tiny, tiny things that survive in the wound. And then looking at the things that die and the things that don't, I mean, it's basically a story of survival. And how do you like enter that space of the wound and protect the, the things that have died or resurrect them or at least, yeah, because looking is like a kind of resurrection, right? Like the gaze makes something alive. I think he says this. There's something really like deep and philosophical about these sort of like energetic transformations that he is trying to do with tenderness. Yeah, I mean, how deeply can we look into our own pain and how soft do we have to become in order to look like inside the wound, you know? And so I that know. kind of like love and kindness and sub submission is maybe, I mean, submission is also related to to God, you know, that's what I, maybe Aisha, I, Aisha thinks of the same thing. Like, what is the beauty that we get from submission to God? Like, it's just, you know? So the idea of submission as being like deeply empowering and connecting us to something beyond, I think that's what he's talking about. So almost kind of, there's religious connotations as well for me. Yeah. yeah like I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure about this um, understanding because when I look at that scene, I feel a bit like there's a distance between what he is convincing himself of in that moment and what we as readers perceive or how we interpret it. So I'm not sure what the rest of you thought, but I felt as if he's there's like a self-deception going on in that moment when he's, I mean, that, that scene that um, Dara you're referring to is um, about, violence and abuse and, and it's a kind of power dynamic which he is playing out I felt um, as a kind of replaying of the violence and trauma of you know his relationship with his mom for example and, and it's something that he keeps playing out but it's not I don't know if it is actually a form of owning agency or power I mean I guess it's, it'd be good to talk about his relationship with Trevor um, and you know, if, is it actually love? Is that how it's presented, or is that how we should see it? I felt like Trevor's whiteness is also very important and something to and how American kind of connection. But um, yeah, I don't. I, I, I was I was troubled. I'm not sure if I see it as a a relationship of love. I don't know what the rest of you think. I think, um, Kav, I'd have to say that I'm with you on that one in terms of um, his own experience of um, power within that dynamic or that particular scene that we've been talking about. It felt almost as though he was sort of resigning himself to that as opposed to necessarily um, feeling ownership of that dynamic um, and that experience. But as though he... It really felt like he was trying to work through it um, and allow himself the option of it being something that is 
a choice or something that he is at least in some way um, has some kind of agency around it but it did feel like essentially it was a damn it, it it felt damaging when I read that scene and and like he also felt it to be damaging but didn't necessarily discuss it in that way right like you can you can sometimes see through um, his own uncertainty I think around some of the the experiences that he has um, but but I think that's one of the things in his relationship with Trevor that it's almost like a microcosm of the um, sort of interplay between violence and tenderness in the book uh, and in other relationships because it is confused and it is dysfunctional but at the heart of it that I, I felt like there was a real tenderness and a real affection and a real love between the two of them and that they're both just a little bit fucked up um, and they're trying to figure it out but that at its core they're sort of trying to muddle through something that felt actually quite pure mm. to me I don't know what did other people make of, of his relationship with Trevor I feel like that relationship that he has with Trevor replicates the exact dynamic that he has with his own mom. Um, he doesn't know what love is. He doesn't know how to receive love. He's very much a giver. So he's always giving to appease his mom. He, you know, will sit, she'll ask him to scratch his back, scratch her back and, you know, he'll go try to soothe her, try to comfort her. And, you know, he does the same thing with his grandma too. When she asks him to like pluck out the snow from her hair and, you know, um, I think, yeah, I think he sort of sees his idea of love um, is basically him sort of being the submissive one, having to like take care of everyone else's needs. And that's how his needs are sort of fulfilled or like he just, does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making sense here, but I just feel like um, for him, it's not about it's not about him, it's about the other person and making them happy because in that scene uh, that Tara was describing, he goes on to say that um, Trevor needed me, I had a choice, a craft, whether he ascends or falls depends on my willingness to make room for him, for you cannot rise without having something to rise over. So again, his mom, she has PTSD and you know, she has, um, like she's abusive towards him and he's seen her fall. He doesn't want Trevor to do the same thing so you know he gives in um and I think yeah that's why he sort of sees submission as this act of resistance but also this you know act of like it's secretly the position that you want to be in yeah I I think just to counter that point about like a kind of self-deception going on I I I don't, I don't think that's what's happening. And one of the ways that we can also think about that is like um, Trevor being this kind of foil to, um, to Little Dog, right? So just on the next page, I think um, they try it the other way around. Like he tries to fuck Trevor. And Trevor says, I don't want to be a, a bitch or something like that. I don't want to feel like a girl, like, like a bitch. And then he says, I had thought sex was to breach new ground despite terror, that as long as the world did not see us, its rules did not apply, but I was wrong. The rules, they were already inside us. So the idea that Trevor, who refuses to submit, is not kind of giving, I mean, this is like also like 
the queer the beauty of the queerness of the text right like how do we break break ourselves open like what does that take and trevor who is so i mean trevor is the one who dies and how does he die like he basically dies like i think close to the end one of his last words are like do you think like i'll always be gay i think i'll get over it soon you know like that is the opposite of submission i think so just talking about self-deception in terms of little dog and his experience with trevor um and his sort of willingness to submit it i don't i don't necessarily mean self-deception in the fact that he is sort of out and out lying to himself about how he is experiencing this um, dynamic and the relationship but more that he you can i feel as though an experience is never necessarily one way or you can have like the, that multiplicity can exist all at once and oh, I suppose what I mean is as a reader I felt it was damaging but that he was trying to convince himself otherwise and he sounded almost resigned um, and that scene for me read like this is the kind of dysfunction that is the product of a lot of his um, early earlier trauma or in uh, in other relationships so as a reader that's how I read it so that's that's me kind of putting that onto um and I guess to add to that section you just read out Aisha um I had thought sex was um, to breach new ground despite terror that as long as the world did not see us its rules did not apply but I was wrong I felt like in that moment when there's a there's a slight little glimmer of, you know, that he could actually receive or he, you know, it could be the dynamic dynamic could change or be different. I felt like there's a kind of glimmer of hope, but then it's kind of, you know, dampened. So, so I, I don't, I, I feel, I feel like there is a kind of resigning himself to, which is maybe to do with self-esteem or what he expects or what he wants and his character as we see like throughout um, and how he relates to Trevor is constantly echoing him um, agreeing with him there seems to be a real kind of um, yeah some something to do with self-esteem which is not it's not necessarily good for him and I mean obviously there's a there's awareness in, in through the writing of that um, and when he talks about the rules, um, and it's after Trevor said, I don't want to feel like a girl, like a bitch. Um, and I guess one of the rules is gender and how that plays out. So I was thinking also about how um, people like to see um, uh, like relationships which are not, are not heterosexual as it's not a kind of space where, of, you know, a kind of the gender is erased or those power dynamics, but th those rules of patriarchy agenda still play out even in these, um, in, in different relationships. But I think uh, Aisha M's point is partly that Little Dog refuses to submit to those rules. Trevor is the one who submits to those rules and Little Dog systematically resists those rules even in his submission to Trevor. And so there's something really interesting and uh, 
something that has great revolutionary potential there. I don't know where that can go. I don't know what the actuation of that could look like. And that's why I felt that seeing that submission as political metaphor was actually a temptation that perhaps I should avoid. But I think there is some sort of interesting potential there. I don't know that it's exactly the same uh, or I don't know that it's even aligned with the Bell Hooks idea of submission. It's not as clearly articulated. And I think the refusal to articulate it is deliberate. But uh, there is something transformative in the relation with Trevor. And the fact that it's Trevor who, you know, at the very beginning, recognition flinched inside him. This is how we were going to do it from now on. Yeah, Trevor sets that up, but it's not Trevor's rules that Trevor's living by. It's the rules of the dominant society. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly like a lot of tenderness for Trevor for this like soft spot behind his neck and this like eat, not eating of, of the calves or whatever it was, the beer. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah, so there's a... There's a recognition of tenderness. I mean, this is, but this is the special thing, like his recognition of other people's tenderness, like his, his mother and grandmother are both suffering from, from PTSD. And like, if you, yeah, like the tenderness with which he is able to view them allows him a more holistic and more ultimately like a healing kind of view. Right. So yeah, I really felt like that perspective, that tenderness that he has is very much like the, it's almost reading it in the book, you think that that is what is going to save you. Mm -hmm. um, it's yeah. almost like his superpower really in the book. Um, and, you know, going back to his relationship with Trevor, it's so interesting because for me, it really felt like, you know, Trevor is... Um, you know, he's, he's represented as a, a quite a complex character and the relationship is really complex, but then also he can just stand symbolically for so many things, can't he? So many things that are oppressive um, to Little Dog and his family and the people that look like him. And so that's why the relationship between them, how, um, how fraught it is, but then also how tender it is, is very much my experience of, of the book as a whole um, and his his perspective, uh, the way that he sees things, um, it's, it's all of that, isn't it? That it's almost like a, a whole world within that relationship and then also within other relationships in the book. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't really know where to take that that tenderness that he has um, other than in my res my response to it was it quite extreme like I, I felt almost like I hadn't um, hadn't come across this before I think because of the extent of the trauma and the violence that he experiences and and the pain of the novel I found it to be extremely painful to read the novel um, and I think that is not because of the violence and the trauma, but because of the extreme tenderness that he's able to um, to display and to to still uh, maintain. I think that's what made it so painful um, to read. I don't know if anybody else had a 
Yeah, it was like I I found it quite devastating, and I would say exactly Mm, the same reason. Yeah, and for the same reason, it's like it touches something really tender in in you that you oh my god, like this is still alive. You know, you remember something in you that's so soft. At the same time, I think that I I wasn't so comfortable in 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 the relationship, for example, that he has with Trevor. I felt like it's an abusive relationship, and I felt like there's something wrong in him interpreting this as love, or seeing it, or feeling it as love. And it's more a kind of indication of his damage and how deeply it's internalized. I felt as if has he gone? Has this narrator gone through a process of perhaps? I don't know, maybe anger is extreme, but feeling anger towards, first of all, working through things with his, um, you know, his his mother and feeling some anger for what he's gone through before he gets to the forgiveness or something that allows him to seek, to break the cycle and to go on and have relationships which don't repeat that kind of dynamic in which he continues to kind of receive I mean, I, I just felt as if um, it was a really problematic relationship between him and Trevor. And I don't, I don't, maybe it's a kind of love, but I don't think it's the kind of love that, you know, is, is healthy for either yeah. of them. I think all of the love stories in this book are abusive. But like you're saying, like everyone is, is, is in pain and everyone is... Uh, a victim I guess in a sense but little dog is the only one who's looking at his pain like with wide open eyes right and he says like referring that this is a reference to the title he says that um uh he says uh to be gorgeous you must first be seen but to be seen allows you to be hunted so so yeah, I mean, little dog is also the most glorious thing person in in the in the book. So, I mean, especially like his mom and his grandmother are really like running, running, running from the pain, you know. So, so like that. So this thing about being seen. There was another moment, wasn't there, about uh, when he's at school. Um, I think he's maybe six or something, and the boy. Um, what does he do? He gives him his um, lunch. He shares his lunch with him. That's also this thing of being seen. So, um, so I feel like there's a, there's a break there between what you what you were just reading out, Aisha, between wanting to be seen and then I feel like the second part of it, which is that you are also open to being hunted, is where his trauma comes in, where he can't just you know. Maybe there's a part of him. And I felt like that same kind of glimpse of that in that scene that we were just talking about where he thinks that maybe, you know, Trevor will basically, like the roles will be reversed between him and Trevor, uh, Trevor uh, in that moment. So I feel like there's these little glimpses of kind of, you know, wanting to be seen in a way that is more equal or, you know, that also is for him to receive. But at the same time, because of the, you know, the, the history, what, keep, what he is resigned to is perhaps that the, that, that can't happen or that that is, um, you know, he will always 
experience it as, something, as a kind of abuse. And I guess I want to come back to the point that Dara was making, which is about, is there also a kind of quietism here? Is it like, if we think about the politics of this, um, I guess in this whole idea of submission um, and love, um, what, what is the, what does that mean politically? But also, I think it is important for us to think of, um, to remember that in, in this relationship, um, Trevor's whiteness, I've mentioned it before, I do think it is really important. Um, and there is a difference between his um, mom and his grandmother and Trevor in terms of, because, because um, he, in a way, in some, there's moments of power he has in that dynamic with his mom and his grandmother, which he describes in his childhood. The fact that he can read, the fact that he knows English. He, he does mention, doesn't he, that there's those moments when he is interpreting for them or explaining for them or the normal mother and child relationship is, you know, reversed. Um, whereas with Trevor, it's like from day one, it's, it's a kind of quite, even, even though it does change at the very end when he has gone away to college and he comes back and we see him interacting with Trevor as a kind of adult and there's a little glimpse that he's, you know, maybe that dynamic is not so clear cut. But I don't know what the rest of you think about that, but it'd be good to talk about Trevor's whiteness. He, I think he represents um, Americanness. Mm -hmm. as, well, as well as being, you know, damaged and, and flawed and vulnerable himself. I do think Little Dog refuses to equate Americanness with whiteness and insists that, that Trevor's whiteness does put him in a different category. There's a moment, I forget exactly where, where he repeatedly says, okay, there was a part of America that, little Do that uh, Trevor would never see. And uh, that was because he was white. He says that he spells it out very clearly with no frills. Regarding the abusive dynamic, I do feel like Little Dog says very clearly, or Fong says very clearly, that, uh, that this character is missing out. I think that what he says in that passage where Trevor, um, where that passage, I forget the exact phrase, about uh, sexuality, uh, what I thought sex was, was this. I think he says Trevor's being a coward. Mm. I think that's what he's saying there. Like he's not saying I will submit to Trevor and accept him no matter what or whatever. I think he's saying Trevor was a coward and Trevor was missing out. My perspective of the world is much more full and I'm much happier for it. Which is an interesting insistence. Maybe a mistaken insistence, but I don't think that it is... Uh, I mean, and maybe it amounts to a kind of quietism, but I don't think that it is a simple following of Trevor's lead. Um, yeah, I was going to say something else. Oh, I don't actually see the grandmother as uh, giving in in the way that, like, to me, the grandmother feels very... Uh, it feels like a character who has dealt with her trauma. It feels like a, a wiser character than we're making her out to be in this conversation so far. Like she's the one who, I, who describes to Little Dog the, uh, the problem with her daughter, right? Mm -hmm. She's 
teller of stories. She's the first person who gives him the taste of the power of language that he later, interestingly and paradoxically, ascribes to animals. I really felt from reading the book that in my own response to it was that in Little Dog's family, there's love and magic. Um, you know, the sort of surreal stories that Lan tells Little Dog. Um, you can feel that there's something really there that holds them together. Whereas the small snippets that we get of Trevor's home life are incredibly sad just really without color. Um, and I don't know if that goes away in saying something about that power dynamic or the perceived uh, difference between sort of his family and American society. You know, the way that it plays out in society at large and then the way that it plays out in the home. Um, and so how our responses are different as a reader because of the, the intimate spaces that we get to see into versus the obvious um, kind of inequality within society at large. I don't know, I felt like they almost in some ways go towards balancing each other out. Uh, I think that one moment when he clearly says that when he expresses a sense of the of Trevor's privilege is on page 111 to 112 in mine. I don't know. I think our pages are fairly close together. Surfacing from the sheets, his face shone through the wet mask we made of our scavenge. He was white. I never forgot this. He was always white. And I knew this was why there was space for us. A farm, a field, a barn, a house, an hour, two a space I never found in the city where the tenement apartments we lived in were so cramped one could tell when a neighbor had a stomach flu in the middle of the night. To hide here in a room in a broken down mobile home was somehow a privilege, a chance. He was white, I was yellow. In the dark, our facts lit us up and our acts pinned us down. I felt like this was a very ambivalent articulation of white privilege to go back to Pakisa's point because um, it's a kind of really lonely image that we get. It's also, yes, the privilege of not having to work until you, you know, fall asleep on the couch the way his mother does with her hands like fish, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Um, it, it is, yes, space, but that space is not necessarily a positive thing or an advantage in life in general. Uh, to open up just another avenue uh, or another kind of field, which is that I, the argument that this book is not actually written for, for his mother. And one example is like explaining little dog, you know, explaining, oh, in our culture, like this is what, what we do. Mm. And there's so many examples of that. Like you said, like self-care in our culture is acts of service. Again and again, he's explaining, this is what happens in, in, in our culture. Um, I think I wrote some of them. Oh yeah, he says, as you, sometimes he says, as you know, like he's speaking to his mother, but he's explaining his culture. So he says, as you know, yeah. and he explains to her something she already knows. 
and then something about the anus you came out of my anus and then he explains <laughs> like this is a cultural thing which are all indications that this uh that this you is like is maybe the not you yeah is maybe maybe not his mother yeah but, but then also, yeah sorry, i was just gonna say even though you know this novel is compromised of like you know, letters to his mom, like it's sort of interspliced with like his own musings and it sort of seems like poetry at one point, then it breaks off into like being an essay and, you know, it, it doesn't so it's it's very fractured, just like, you know, his family is, just like his upbringing is and just like, you know, all his relationships are in this novel. So I think he kind of like fluctuates between, it's never just one thing, yeah. is what I'm trying to say and I don't think you know we talked about multiplicity before so it's not just for his mom it's you know for us as readers it's for us uh, you know it's for I don't know like partly to Trevor I think most importantly it's to himself you know like this is yeah. a letter he knows his mom is never ever gonna read because she's illiterate yeah. so who's he really doing this for it's for him um, I guess what Aisha's also asking though is the question of who are the readers as well yeah. um and yeah it's clearly not a it's clearly it's clearly a, a literary device this whole you know thing of a letter to his mom that his mom's never going to read and of course things that his mom wouldn't he would not he would want to share with his mom um but i think um it is it is something to think about and i think even in interviews that uh, I've listened to like uh, a few and I think there is this element of explaining um, a culture and a context. I think, who was it that was just read? Was it Aisha um, who just read that section which was about um, um, uh, the uh, blank page even after all these years, the contrast between our skin surprises me the way a blank page does when my hand gripping a pen begins to move through a spatial field, trying to act upon its life without marring it. But by writing, I mar it, I change it, embellish and preserve you all at once. Um, and feel as if, um, I mean, first of all, what, who, who, is his, who is he preserving his mum for? Um, but at the same time, there is something throughout the whole book about, we talked about the word, but also about literature mm. and the relationship to writing and literature and articulation. And I guess the kind of power it gives him um, or, or how he sees being a, being a writer. I don't know what any of you think. Is there a sense of the limitations that, of 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 those words or of writing. I mean, I think I, I did notice a few points where he's talking about um, art um, and pain and destruction. Um, and I think there's a part of me that felt uncomfortable because I felt as if these are some of the myths around being an artist and being a writer and creativity, which I recognize from you know, going to university and studying creative writing and a whole kind of, you know, uh, aura that's created around literature. And I do feel as if he he does buy into that. So, I, and, and then some of the people that he's referencing throughout it as well, including Bath, I feel as if 
he does, there is a certain context that he belongs to and he's writing to and within, which is obviously a very different context to the one that he's grown up in or that he's writing about. Well, just that he, I think that he addresses this in, in the novel in this section. He says, they will tell you that great writing breaks free from the political, thereby transcending the barriers of difference, uniting people towards universal truth. They'll say this is achieved through craft above all. Let's see how it's made, they'll say, as if how something is assembled is alien to the impulse that created it, as if the first chair was hammered into existence without considering the human form. So here, like, he's aware, clearly, that literature is a con constructed thing, like, made according to the ideas of the person who is making it. At the same time, I do think that we can also kind of zoom out a bit and actually, if we take the narrative apart for what it is, we can also see that there is a certain structure that's quite familiar. And there is a, a kind of familiar narrative there as well, which includes, includes a, that kind of relationship of, you know, um, whiteness, like so, a white person and... Um, an immigrant and maybe the possibility even though I know it's very complex and, and it's tragic in the end but the kind of ri rising above through this kind of union um, I, again just because I keep I, I keep saying it that I do think it's significant that he's white and that could be for very various reasons but one of those reasons could be that it's part of this kind of narrative structure which also could be related to who the book is, you know, the context it's written in and who it's written for. And I think what Dara is also bringing up is that there is a definitely a kind of intellectual literary context with, with the people that he's referring to, and it becomes a frame. So in the end, we know throughout the novel, we know that he's going to be a writer and, and you know, fit into this certain slot and you know and, and and he does leave and he does um you know go to to university and study writing and become a successful writer and so that is also a kind of familiar narrative even though the reason why we may not give that so much weight is because the the novel itself doesn't give it that much weight the weight is more in terms of where he's coming from and writing about that um um, I don't know what else to be honest, but I, I do think that on a fundamental level it is a familiar narrative. Yeah, I think it's problematic. I think you're right in the sense that there's familiar tropes here and um, and they, I, but I, I feel as though they have been more problematic than perhaps they are here. Um, I don't. I, I think I also I'm. I was so emotionally moved by this uh, novel. I think. I'm kind of less critical for those reasons. Um, but I feel like he is, he's quite aware and he's struggling. Um, you can feel that, that tension in the novel. And then I wonder what the alternative is. Yeah, it's tricky, it's tricky. I mean, in terms of uh, going back to um, the idea of whiteness, something that we haven't touched on is, um, Paul, 
the character, yeah. his sort of like grandfather, not grandfather character, who I think, you know, going back to something that Tara said earlier about everybody being violent, but little dog, I feel like we could add Paul into that, couldn't we? Um, wasn't he a soldier? I, yeah, yes, I suppose. Yeah, he was. But I mean, we kind of meet him in this, uh, in a very sort of different context. And mm. I think the characterization of him is really... Um, non-violent and quite sort of gentle and loving and sort of a, a bit of an anomaly in the book I feel um but again his whiteness and you know there's that really poignant and kind of uncomfortable scene where they're walking the dog together and a neighbor of Paul's comes over to them and she says oh um Paul it's so great it looks like you finally got a dog boy and he says oh well and she she speaks to him like you know he, he can't speak English um so and then uh, Paul says well actually this is my grandson please you know don't forget that that scene is really I don't know it's very uncomfortable um and again it's another sort of link to whiteness um that little dog has and then also whiteness in terms of um, his mother's experience in Vietnam and how problematic her whiteness was there. I think uh, the kind of uh, depiction of whiteness is quite interesting. It, it's quite complex. But yeah, I don't know. Um, didn't quite know what to make of Paul or his place in the novel. Uh, it's interesting. It's so easy to forget what Aisha A pointed out, right? That Paul is a soldier. Paul fought in that war. And it's alarming that it's so easy to forget. Yeah, sure. It makes me ask, is there something in the book that allows us to allows forget? you to forget. Yeah. Maybe the, maybe the sense of being a product of this war, which means that, I mean, is there is there a kind of position or a kind of, you know, political location in terms of articulated in terms of that war? You never see him do anything violent. Like he talks about how, he talks about his mom's relationship with who I'm presuming is little dad, the little dog's dad and how violent he was towards her. But when he describes uh, Paul's relationship with Lan, you know, like, it's all very, like, it's all very, like, romantic and sweet. And, you know, he describes their wedding photo. And, like, yeah, it's everything that, I don't know, it's everything that um, his relationship, well, uh, his mother's relationship with, her, with his father wasn't. And, yeah, like you said, it, it's an anomaly. Even and the fact that he sticks around, the fact that he still allows him to call him grandfather, even though he's not his grandfather, um, yeah. Even yeah. though at the, at the end, um, there's the scene of the, um, he's kind of re uh, showing him doing a video call yeah. of, uh, um, of Lan um, at the very end. And... Um, I think I was almost surprised to see that he had what he had done was really, you know, it was quite bad. But you didn't get a sense of that, that he he abandoned her, didn't he? And he went back 
to the States and then he married somebody else. So he, yeah. he, he somebody else. And um, so, but you don't really get a sense of that throughout. And then you, he also is, re, he's also kind of redeemed by the fact that he's so remorseful and he, he also frames the whole thing as a deception that the mother deceived him to come back. She said she was ill and then they intercepted and she all never got his, uh, she never got, uh, he never got uh, Lan's letters. Yes, yeah. He is responsible for, I mean, he basically did what soldiers did all the time. Mm. You, you know, get together with somebody and then you abandon them and then you... Um, Go back you know, to your life, yeah. Yeah. He asks, why did you want volunteer in Vietnam when so many boys were heading to Canada to dodge the draft? He does? Yeah. On page 228, he says, I'm sorry, my pages are different from yours. This man, this white man, this Paul who swings open the wooden garden gate, the metal latch clanking behind him, is not my grandfather by blood, but by action. Why did he volunteer in Vietnam when so many boys were heading to Canada to dodge the draft? I know he never told you because he would, ha would have had to explain his abstract and implacable love of the trumpet in a language he would falter in. How he wanted, as he claimed, to be a white Miles Davis from the backwoods and cornfields of rural Virginia. How the trumpet's fat notes reverberated through the two-story farmhouse of his boyhood, the one with its doors torn clean off by a father who raged through the rooms, terrorizing his family. The father whose only connection to Paul was metal, the shell lodged in his old man's brain from the day he stormed Omaha Beach, the um, brass Paul lifted to his mouth to make music. So he, so he went to war to play the trumpet? So we're told. Perhaps that, that was what made it attractive to him? Maybe that um, he was in the, in the band, like the army. He performed yeah, for the I feel like this connects again to something that is quite familiar, which is not only literature, obviously, um, but also music, or I guess that, that vein of, you know, creativity and art, which is just always a kind of source of like redemption or that somebody is a good person. It becomes a kind of signifier of that. If you know, the, oh, you know, I was just gonna say, now you've said that, you know what that reminds me of? He basically, in the book, he mentioned Tiger Woods and how if his father basically didn't fight in the Vietnam War, if he didn't go off to Thailand, uh, he wouldn't have met his mother and then Tiger Woods wouldn't have been here. And obviously Tiger Woods is his famous golfer. So again, it feeds into this whole redemption, you know, narrative that you're discussing right now. This idea that, oh, because, you know, um, little dog is gonna go on to like be the successful author. Like he wouldn't be here basically, and neither would Tiger Woods or other people like them. Is he pro Tiger Woods' existence? Like, I don't know that he. No? I, I don't know. I think that's a funny. Uh, I think the reason Tiger Woods is in there is yes because of the. No. Uh, the war uh, and the parallel between them and their success, etc. But also because he has an animal name, right? Oh, right. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Yeah. So named after um, a friend who also died in the war. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his father had... 
in, in the in the acknowledgments, he thanks someone and he says they informed my understanding of Tiger Woods and his <laughs> indelible and his indelible legacy in golfing and American culture. So I think that backs what Aisha is saying about like seeing Tiger Woods as this like, you know, um, cultural yeah. contributor kind of person. And I think he has a very kind of tongue in cheek and. Um, non-committal relationship to American culture and American ideas of greatness. Mm. I don't think that redeems the book's uh, ah, relation to success in general, but I think that he, the self-mockery extends to Tiger Woods' brand of success as well. Okay, lovely. Well, um, let's leave it there for today. Amazing. Thank you. Thank that you. was fun. See you again next month. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye.